Hello everybody, it's almost Pesach. I want to share with you a thought I saw in the Sefer Ali Shur from Rosh Wolbe. We know we've been cleaning for Pesach, we've been getting ready for Pesach, we've been going after that chametz with hot water, with torches, whatever we could do to get rid of it. But we know that Chazal tell us that besides the physical chametz, besides those nasty Cheerios on the bottom of your kid's car seat, there's a spiritual chametz. The Gemara tells us that the Jewish people say to Kaddish Baruch, they say to Hashem, our will is to serve you, Hashem, except we're held back by the Sa'ar Shabbat the yeast in the dough, which the Gemara explains is the metaphor for the Yitzhar, for the even inclination. Every Jew naturally wants to do what's right. What holds him back is that little bit of yeast, that little bit of Yitzhar that's inside him that makes everything seem so much more than it really is, that fluffs everything up. And it holds him back. And what we're doing on Pesach, Sechazal, we're getting rid of that yeast. We're going around and we're searching inside ourselves for that Yitzhar and we're trying to uproot it. And Revolvi says that the truth is, in every single mitzvah, we find constantly this idea. On one hand, there's the halachas, the strict rules of what a person is supposed to do and not do. And then there's the metaphor, there's the deeper feelings and appreciations this person is supposed to get from doing the mitzvah. How do the two connect? And he explains that the truth is that Chazal are telling us a very important thing. Every time we do a mitzvah, every time we follow the, the halachic guidelines, what it does is it builds a framework. It builds a, a place where a person can now begin to experience the metaphor that Chazal are giving us. When a person goes and he takes himself and he pushes himself to clean for Pesach, to look for Chametz, to make a Pesach Seder the way it's supposed to be made. When a person does the Halacha, it gives him the ability, it allows his Neshama to start connecting and, and living and experiencing the metaphors that Chazal tells are supposed to lie deeper in, in the keeping of the mitzvah. And with that, I want to start to give a couple of ideas, a couple of things that I've seen about the Pesach Seder in different points so that we can go through a Pesach Seder and we shouldn't just be keeping the halacha. Of course, that alone is very important, but we can do more than that. By keeping the halacha of the Pesach Seder, we're supposed to change us. We're supposed to experience something. We're supposed to grow from it and to come out different. Many people this year have a custom that they don't say Shalom Aleichem this Friday night. Although it's a Friday night, and usually Friday night we sing Shalom Aleichem, when it comes out on a Pesach night, they don't sing it. And I looked around and I found that the source is as follows. The reason is because the Arizal tells us that the Shekhinah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence, it comes down and arrests on every Jew by his Pesach Seder. And therefore, there's no place for Malachim. Malachim don't belong here now. This is a personal time when a Jew spends connecting with his Creator, connecting with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Malachim don't belong there. And that's why, says the Arizal, we say Halach Ma'ani in Aramaic. Because the Gemara tells us that Amalach Yashar don't understand Aramaic. They don't understand that language. And we want to bring out this point. We want to say this is a time when I'm talking to HaGash Baruch directly. There's nobody else around. I heard in the name of the Ayyav Yisrael, this is the Aptarav, that there's a special skula. They have a Jew who's suffering from something and he needs this particular salvation, particular Yeshua. When we say in the Haggadah, the Nitzak, the Jewish people cried out to HaGash Baruch when they were in Mitzrayim and they were saved, a person is supposed to cry out his own personal problem that he needs a Yeshua for, and that many people have seen the schooler come to work. 
I think the idea is one and the same. It's because it's an incredibly special time when a Jew has to sit there with a Kaddish Baruch. Morale explains the reason why we wear a kittel. The reason why we wear the white garments because we're like a Kaihin Gadol who's going in Lifnai Ulifnim. He's going into Kaihin Gadol and he can't be wearing gold. He can only be wearing white. We're about to begin something so special, so precious. And it'll be a shame if we don't take the time to properly gain from it, to properly experience it, and to properly get the most we could from it. I like to begin with an idea that I saw in the Haggadah of Shmuel Yaakov Bornstein. Brings a Medrash. There's a Medrash Rabbah in Parshish B'Shalach. It says something very interesting. The Pasuk tells us that when the Jewish people left the land of Mitzrayim, Hashem didn't take them the straight route from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, straight to Eretz Canaan, straight to the land of Eretz Yisrael. Rather, Hashem took them a circuit, He circumvented, He went deep into the Midbar, and it says in the Pasuk a language of Ayasevaam. Hashem encircled the nation, and they went off deep into the Sinai Desert, and Hashem in the Pasuk explains Hashem understood that the Jewish people would be not ready to stand up for a full-fledged war against the Canaanite, and Baruch wanted to give them time to acclimate out of slavery and being ready to go fight a war. But the Medrash says as follows, says the Medrash that the language of Vayasev Esa'am and that the Jewish people were encircled, says the Medrash, Mahu Vayasev, what does it mean Akash Baruch encircled? Shehikifan Akash Baruch Akash Baruch encircled the Jewish people with his cloud. And from near, says the Medrash, this is how we know the idea of the Anane HaKavit, the famous clouds of glory Jewish people had in the Midbar in the desert. We learn it from this passage of Akash Baruch Hu Vayasev, it's a language of encircling. Akash Baruch Hu went and he surrounded the Jewish people. He protected them with his Ananiyah Kavit. And the Medrash says off with a very, very puzzling statement. Mikan Seinu. From here say our rabbis, Afilu Ani Shevi Yisrael, even a poor person, the poorest of Jews, Ad He cannot eat until he does Heseva, until he leans on Pesach Seder. Why? Shekach Asalehem HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because that's what Hashem did with Jeshiva Shenemar Vayasev Elikim. Hashem encircled them. What in the world does such a measure mean? We learn that Hashem gave us an Aniyah covered from Vayasev. Okay, fine. It's a drush. Therefore, a person has to sit Vayaseva. He has to lean. What does that mean? Tadashmoyakavorn just has a beautiful idea. It says, we know in Halacha, the Gemara Brachas tells us, brought in Shachanarach, that ultimately Haseba, when a person leans, when a person gets himself comfortable to eat, that's the most ultimate level of kivius, of sitting down and setting yourself up somewhere. A guy wants to eat a snack on the go, he doesn't lay down on the couch, undo his belt, and get comfortable. Right? He just keeps going, he eats while he eats, while he walks. Whereas a haseba, haseba, when a person leans, leans down on the couch and begins to eat, that's the ultimate level of a person set in this place, and all the halakha ramifications that come from that in regards to zeman and other things. Now, how in the world can a person get himself to that level of security and comfortableness when a person is in the midbar? How can a person come to the level where he feels so secure that he can sit in a barren desert where there's snakes and scorpions and all kinds of wild things, and lay down and begin to eat. Only if what? Only if he knows that 
he is completely secure. He's protected from all sides. This Gemara tells us in Mesech Shabbos, the Gemara says that when a person builds something on Shabbos, and then a person destroys something on Shabbos, those are two types of prohibited labors on Shabbos. Those two different malachas. The Gemara tells us that if a person destroys something, and he does not plan to rebuild it over there, then that's not considered real. It's not considered a constructive labor. Considered a destructive labor because it's not destroying for any real purpose. The Gemara asks the question. The Gemara says the entire source, the place we know, the idea of building and demolishing comes from where? From the Mishkan. And the Mishkan, they would disassemble the Mishkan to rebuild it somewhere else. They never rebuilt it in the same place. They always traveled with it. That's why they took it down. So how can you tell me that in order to be liable for dismantling something, I have to rebuild it in its own place? The very source of the halakha is not like that. And the Gemara says a fundamental concept. It says the Gemara, in the Midbar, when the Jews are traveling, they always travel by the word of God. Hashem said, you can rest here, now you move here. That, says the Gemara, makes it that wherever they built, wherever they disassemble, is always the same place. And the explanation of the Gemara, says the Sikhas Musr, is that when a person goes through life, and he travels here and he goes there, he thinks he's all over the place. But when a person lives with complete connection, complete betachem with Hashem, he's never in different places, he's always in one place. The Mishkan is always being built in one place. It's being built next to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Wherever HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants it, wherever he's putting me, it's always the same place. There's no difference here, there, anywhere. I'm always in the same place, I'm always next to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's how we call Hashem Makim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the place. Because he's everywhere. He, he is wherever I'm with him, I'm always in the same place. What well, the Medrash is telling us, that we learn the idea of Heseba, the idea that a Jew on Pesach night is supposed to be so comfortable, so secure, so at peace, such a level of menucha, that he can lean down and lay and say, I am parked right here, I have no worries in the world, that comes from, because a Jew has a Yaseh Velekim HaKadosh Baruch Hu encircles him with a cloud of glory HaKadosh Baruch Hu is around him, protecting him. There's nothing else but HaKadosh Baruch Hu in him. And that can give the person the ability to be Vayasev. We're all looking to come to peace. We're always looking to be settled. We're always feeling so much stress. Says the Pesach Seder, the way we're going to get to this level and experience the Seder properly, in order to do Haseba, to lean properly on Pesach night, Step one is we have to feel confident and to recognize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He's the one who's everything for us. Wherever He says, wherever He puts us, it's always the right place. And we can be completely at ease and at peace. And we can lean back on Seder night and begin to say the Haggadah. Magid begins with a statement, This is the poor bread that our forefathers ate in Mitzrayim. We go and we invite all the poor people to come and join us in the Pesach Seder. And there's many, many questions on this statement. First of all, the simple reason why this statement is in Aramaic, unlike every other part of the Haggadah, which is in Hebrew, is because the statement was actually added much later. The original Haggadah, the primary Haggadah, is all really a compilation of Brises and Mishnayis and Medrashim, which were written by the Tanoim in the early turn of the millennia of common era, 100, 200, 300 common era, whereas the Halach Ma'anya was instituted by the Ga'inim, who lived already in Babel, and around the year 700 common era. And 
The question is, why do they feel it's so important to institute this all together? Why do they feel they needed to add this piece into the Haggadah, into the Seder? Number two, the t- statements made in Halachmania seem to be a little strange. Why, particularly on Pesach, do we make this proclamation to invite guests? And why do we do it while we're inside our own homes, halfway into the meal, we start saying, hey, everyone should come. Seemingly, it's out of place, but if we should go outside before we start the meal and say, any poor people should come in and join us. And lastly, the statement, this is the poor bread that our forefathers ate in Egypt. The Torah says that the reason why we eat matzah is because their dough did not have enough time to rise. They were taken out of Egypt so quickly they didn't have time to let their bread rise and the, the redemption was so fast that the bread didn't rise and turned into matzah. Seemingly the Torah is saying that the reason we eat matzah is for the redemption. It's not because it was the bread that we ate in Egypt. What are the Goyim trying to tell us? So I saw the beautiful shot in the Maisa Nisim Haggadah from the Yaakov Leberbaim, the Nesivas, and he says as follows. He says, they're really... The very idea of celebrating Pesach, it seems out of place. A guy gets liberated, he's in jail, he's incarcerated somewhere, and he gets liberated. So of course he's happy and he celebrates. But if God forbid he gets reincarcerated, he gets taken back into jail. So what's, he, what's there left to celebrate? What is he celebrating after he's back in jail? So we, the Jewish people, although we got out of Egypt, and unfortunately there were many, many, many gullus and sins, and we're still in gullus. We're still under the rule of other nations. We still can't do as we wish. And why are we celebrating the Pesach Seder if the redemption seemingly has ended? And that is a question, says the Nesivas, which the Ga'inim, the first generation of Jews, really, who were in Bavel, they were living there, they were dealing with this question. They were grappling with this question. How do we celebrate Pesach Seder when we're out of Eretz Yisrael, when we're back in a full-fledged Gullus? And that's what they say, We're back at that very same poor bread that the Jews ate when they were in Egypt, the first time they ate matzah. When they ate matzah while they were slaves because the Egyptians didn't give them time to let their bread rise. They pushed them to work so badly, they had no time to let their bread rise. We're reliving the aspect of the matzah. How do we celebrate it? And that, says the Nesivas, is the answer that the Ga'inim give us is that there's a fundamental difference between a person who gets put into jail after being freed, but he has no reason to assume he's going to get back out, and a person who knows that he has a ticket to freedom. Even when he's taken back into jail, if he knows that what got him out the first time is going to get him out the second time, then it's a very different jail experience, and he's still celebrating that first redemption. The Jewish people, Pesach by night when they're taken out of Mitzrayim, something fundamental changed. They became the Am Hashem. Hashem openly went and showed himself that he's choosing the Jewish people as his nation and he's taking them out in a very, very public way. To the point where later when they sinned by the Chet Ego, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem, you can't destroy them because if you do that, what's the world going to say? Why would the Egyptians have a right to say that Kosh Baruch Hu did this to kill them in the desert? Kosh Baruch Hu tied his name and his, so to speak, image HaKadosh Baruch Hu tied himself to the Jewish people and he called them the Am Hashem. And that's a ticket to get out of every Gullus. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Leman Shema, we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for his own name. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is guaranteeing us that he will always take us out because for his sake. 
And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us that level of connection to Him, and that level of credibility, so to speak, that you're my people, no matter what, I'm going to take you out, that is something, no matter which level of gullus we're in now, it's always something to be grateful for, because we know that's going to be our ticket to get out of this gullus as well. And that's why, says the guy, and we say, Hashatahacha, now we're here. The Shona Habava are the Yisrael, and next year we're going to be here in Yisrael, Hashatahavdin. Now we're slaves. Shona Habava and Echayim are going to be free, because we know it. We know it because we got out of Mitzrayim. We know it because the Kosh Baruch Hu put his name on us. And now we know we're going to be free no matter. We're never going to be enslaved internally. And that's why we say, Everyone come and join us. You're right. We can't go out on the streets at this point and tell people to come and join us because we're currently in Gullus. But we're willing to celebrate tonight to the point where we're saying all the stops are out. It's not a half party. It's not a, a dead party. It's a party where everyone should join us. It should be a simcha to the point where everyone should be involved because we understand that we're fundamentally free. We're fundamentally connected to Kadosh Baruch Hu, and we're always going to be Nechayim. We're always going to be eventually going to Ar the Yisrael. I remember my neighbor, Mr. Banker's Zechariah Levracha. See, he was Nifter a couple of years ago. I went to the Shiva, and Mr. Banker was a war survivor. He went to the camps, and his son was talking about saying over stories that happened, and he said how one time they were davening in the barracks, a couple from Jews in the barracks, and they were davening late at night. They made a mini or something, and a Nazi guard walked in at them, walked in on them, and he started screaming and yelling, you crazy Jews, what are you praying for? God forsake you. God's not going to save you guys. What are you doing? Go back to bed. And it's Mr. Banker, for some reason he couldn't, he couldn't let it go, and he said, no, nishtefebik, not for forever. Because Baruch didn't, forgive, didn't forget us for forever. And the guard heard him say something. The guard said, what would you say? And he said again, nishtefebik. He was sure he was going to get shot on the spot. But the guard, for some reason, he stopped. And he said, Du bist a Kluger. You're a smart man. And he walked out. Till this day, he has no idea why the guard didn't shoot him. But a Jew, because Baruch takes care of him. And a Jew has this fundamental idea. A Jew knows that even in the darkest of times, it's nisht of Ebik. It's not for forever, because Baruch he gave us his name that we're his people. And even though it's Halach even though we're back in Gullus, we're eating the same bread, it's always going to be L'shana Habav, Ha'ari Yisrael, Shana Habav Nechayr. Hello, everybody. We want to talk about the Halachos of cleaning for Pesach and try to give a little bit of clarity as to where the obligations come from and what the objectives are. Okay, so just a little introduction before we start. Where does the obligation to clean from Pesach come from? So the truth is, you look in the beginning of Masech Tapsach, and that Beis Aleph, and the Mishnah already tells us that on the night before Pesach, we have an obligation to check our homes for chametz. And Rashi over there explains that this comes from the biblical obligation, the, the prohibition of having chametz in our property. The Torah tells us, Bal it should not be seen, Ubal it should not be found. Chametz should be completely out of your property on Pesach. There's not just a prohibition to eat chametz, you can have chametz as well. Okay, so that's why we clean and that's why we search for chametz to get rid of the chametz in our houses. Tesis, however, is bothered by a question. Tesis wants to know, why isn't it sufficient to simply make the chametz ownerless? Why do I have to get rid of it? Just make it hefker. The Gemara tells us in the Avdalatam Abezim Sachem that if a person goes and says before Pesach, all this chametz is hefker, it's not mine, he does not transgress the prohibition of Bal Yirah, Bal Yimatzeh. The Torah specifically adds on, it should not be seen to you, this leaven bread. 
which the Gemara tells us shows us that if the chametz is completely ownerless, the Jew has no connection to it, he does not transgress by Yerah and by Yematzah on it. So therefore, it says, I have a much easier thing. Instead of having the obligation to clean for Pesach, let's just leave it simple. Everyone will make it ownerless, and that's it. And in fact, we do that anyways. After we do the cleaning, what do we say? We say, call Chamira. We go and we proclaim all of our chametz ownerless. So why did the rabbis make an enactment to go and search and destroy the chametz? What's wrong with the original plan? Just make it ownerless, and that's it. So the Mishnah brings down two reasons for our obligation to actually search and destroy our chametz that we have. Number one, says Mishnah is that we don't really believe that everybody's going to be able to go and say, I make my chametz ownerless. They're not going to mean it. A guy's got a whole bar full of whiskey and stuff sitting in his cabinet, and he's going to say, this chametz is ownerless. Imagine a guy walks in a minute later and tries to grab one of those bottles. He'll kill him, right? No one really is going to give away their stuff for free like that. So we don't trust that every guy is really going to really make his things hefker and make it ownerless. And if he doesn't really mean it, he'll end up transgressing the derise, the biblical prohibition of Balyura or Balyumatza. So therefore, we don't take any chances. We make everyone get all their chametz out of their property or at least sell it to a non-Jew. That's one answer as to why the rabbis made the obligation of cleaning for Pesach, getting rid of all the chametz in your house. Number two, which is the answer of Teisvis, which is that we're concerned if we don't make a guy get rid of the chametz in his house, and a guy can have chametz sitting there, even if it's ownerless, but who knows? Middle of Cholamayi, the guy gets hungry, he's not thinking, he grabs a donut. It's very easy for a person to come and mess up and eat chametz by mistake because the whole year chametz is permitted. Just for eight days, he can't eat chametz. So it's very easy to mess up. We don't take any chances. Get all the chametz out of your house or at least sell it to somebody else and keep it out of your property, or I'll put it away somewhere where it's not yours and you have no access to it. Okay, so now we know what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve that, number one, there should be no chametz in our property because we don't want to eat it and because we don't want to transgress the prohibition of having chametz in our property on Pesach. Okay, so now, what size chametz is an issue? So the truth is like this. It really depends on which part of the house you're talking about. In general, chametz that's a crumb, that's a pirurim, it's tiny crumbs, there's no real prohibition. No one's going to go eat it. And number two is, <clears throat> even ownership-wise, no one considers it ownership to have little crumbs. The Gemara says pirurim crumbs are by definition negligible. No one cares about them. So it's not considered owning chametz on Pesach if you have crumbs. That's why we don't make people check their bookshelves and svarim for chametz the only time they have to check them is if they want to bring that safer to the table where there may be some of those crumbs that get into your food and you'll eat it. But in the sense of owning chametz and having chametz around, tiny crumbs are not really an issue. So therefore, when you're checking the rest of your house, your closets, your book room, your, your, your bedrooms, you don't really have to be worried about tiny crumbs. Those things aren't the issue. The issue is anything which is already something a person might eat. Let's say something around the Cheerio size is what the place can write. So crumbs that are somewhat significant size, a Cheerio size and up, that's what you're looking for when you're looking throughout your house for chametz. Okay, so you don't have to make yourself crazy looking for tiny crumbs. You can just look for things that are around the Cheerio size. Also, once a person goes around and cleans their house, like most people do, with, you know, mopping the floor and spraying shelves, what happens is that even all tiny crumbs become inedible. They get sprayed with, with, with chemicals. So therefore, there's no issue of tiny crumbs on Pesach anywhere except for the kitchen, which we'll talk about in a second. Okay, now, where do you actually have to clean and check for on Pesach? 
So the Mishnah tells us that really the only obligation to do badika to check and clean for chametz is places where it's logical to assume that throughout the year chametz was brought. Okay, so a person's bedroom, people get the munchies, they bring chametz there. Person's car definitely has to be checked. But it really depends also on, you know, the the fact. Do you have little kids? If you have little kids, chances are chametz can be anywhere. They could be stashing Oreos in their toys. They could be stashing Oreos in the bottom of their closet. You never know. So there you got to check. It doesn't have to be a lie. You just kind of go through with a flat, you know, just yourself. Before before, before, before we take his comments tonight, you look through the shelves, you look through the closets, and you see if there's any comments there that's of a significant size. Shelves that are high up, places the kids don't have access to. If you have no reason to assume you brought comments there, you don't have to check those. Okay, so the actual process of cleaning and checking for comments throughout the house really shouldn't take that long. Okay, that's step one. Now, when it comes to the kitchen, it's a little bit more complicated. We know there's a fundamental difference between chametz and other prohibitions. For example, throughout the year, someone's cooking a pot of chalam and a little bit of milk spills in. If there's 60 times of the meat and chalam against the amount of milk that came in, we say the milk becomes negligible and doesn't create a prohibition. Chametz is not like that. With chametz, there's a halacha that even a drop of chametz that falls in on Pesach into a pot, it makes the whole pot prohibited. So therefore, we're a lot more careful when it comes to cleaning for Pesach when it comes to the kitchen. A person has to make sure there's no tiny crumbs that could possibly get into the food in the kitchen on Pesach. So therefore, we wash down the shelves really well. And a lot of people even have a custom to line the shelves with contact paper or something because it's hard to know for sure that you got all the crumbs out. Okay, there's no obligation to line the shelves. But it's just a good idea because it's hard to know for sure that you got all the stuff out, all the crumbs out. And if you do have crumbs, it can get into your dishes and then it gets into your food. That's where the custom comes from. It's not a must. It's a good idea. Okay. Now, that being said, in regards to the heavy appliances in the kitchen, and when it comes to the ovens and the fridges, do you have to move them or not? So, Really, it goes like this. If it's easy to move them, if they're something you can just wheel out, then you should move them out. You have to move them out. And you look behind them, you look for comments, you clean it out, you put them back. If they're the kind of ovens or you know stoves or, or fridges which are hard to move out, then you do not have to sh- drag them out. But we do recommend spraying some kind of cleaning solution or something down there to make any food that may be left underneath inedible and not be considered food and not be considered comments so you won't transgress the prohibition. I hope we cover the basic questions that come to regards to cleaning the house for Pesach. If anybody does have any more questions, please feel free to reach out to me. And in the next year, we'll talk about kashering and other halachas of Pesach. Wishing everyone a wonderful Chag Kasher Vesameach. Hope everyone is well.